stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Forward Into the Past. I'm J.C. Riday, your narrator and host, and today we're picking up where we left off last time in the very strange and exciting tale of Nick Carter's ghost story. The Nick Carter Mysteries were published by the Street and Smith Publishing House beginning in the late 1890s. They were the brainchild of Ormond G. Smith, the son of one of the founders of the company. There were, at that time, many detective stories competing in the story papers. Now, most of them had names that began with the word old. In the early 1890s, the George Monroe Publishing House created the first American story paper detective, Old Sleuth. Up until the creation of this character, the word sleuth was used to describe a tracking dog used by police to hunt criminals. Well, what better way to describe a detective who would stop at nothing to follow the leads to also hunt criminals. Monroe House's Old Sleuth paved the way for a new genre in American storytelling, the detective story, and soon competition was fierce between rival publishing houses. Some of the more popular ones were, of course, Old Sleuth, but there were others like Old Cap Collier, Cap being a nickname for Captain, and Old King Brady. There were, of course, many others, but these were the ones that really survived and thrived. Street and Smith wanted their own detective stories to go along with all the Western and sea adventure stories that they already had. Orman Smith wanted his detective to be something different. All the other publishing houses were using the word old for their detectives. So, why not buck the trend and go young? In the late 1800s, there was a push by New Englanders to be a bit more upper crust educated, and genteel. That was the word that was used mostly. Orman Smith instructed one of his head writers to create a detective that was not just a scrappy police dog, but a refined gentleman of the times who was genteel, highly educated, adept at disguises and mimicry, and physically fit. Thus, the character of Nick Carter was born. Trained by his father to have the sharpest intellect and the shrewdest eye, he was a master of disguise and had unknown secret apartments all over New York that held his vast collection of costumes and makeup. Nick Carter rarely drank alcohol so as not to cloud his mind, and he never smoked. He was indeed a model of Victorian America. Unfortunately, the Victorian era in both the UK and the US ended just after the death of Queen Victoria herself, and it was about this time that the popularity of the very genteel Nick Carter began to wane. The new generation of story readers wanted more rough-and-tumble characters, so Street and Smith created a new character named Doc Savage, who was more of an adventurous type like Indiana Jones. But they gave him Nick Carter's backstory. Trained by his father to be a sharp intellect and a shrewd eye, highly educated and physically fit. 
Nick Carter, unfortunately due to being a product of his time, was discarded like the story papers he was born in. Well, luckily for us, the stories were saved and reborn, and we can continue sharing them like the current nail-biter Nick Carter's ghost story. In our last episode, Horace Richmond confided in Nick that the staff was beginning to share the colonel's strong belief that ghosts were haunting Plummer House, and that they were behind the mysterious disappearance of the departed Miss Lavina's jewels. Nick, however, was certain that Colonel Richmond was still being marked by profiteering false mediums. Following a hunch, Nick followed Colonel Richmond to an unknown house where a false seance was being held. Before he had a chance to expose the gang to the colonel, a fight ensued, resulting in a fire. After the fire was extinguished and the gang rounded up, Nick rode back to Plummer House, but before he was able to re-enter the house, he was ambushed by his assistant, Patsy. <laughs> Lots going on as we go forward into the past once again and continue the mysterious Nick Carter's ghost story. Chapter 7. A Really Competent Ghost Patsy told his story in a few words. He had watched the Stevens house all day without discovering anything. As evening descended, however, his patience had been rewarded. She came out, said Patsy, and quietly scooted off across the fields. Millie Stevens? Yes. What'd she do? She made for that big oak which stands in the middle of the field on the right of the road as you go from the station. I had to trail carefully, for it was not very dark and there was no cover so I couldn't get very near her. Under that tree a man was waiting. He had a saddle horse with him. The man and the girl exchanged a few words. Of course, I couldn't hear what they said. Neither could I get a line on the man. I, I resolved to get nearer, though it was taking big risks. It couldn't be done. They saw me. In a flash, the man leaped into a saddle and pulled the girl up in front of him in regular old-fashioned style. They were off in no time. It was a fine horse they rode. I wasn't in it at any stage of the game. I ran myself out at the end of about a mile. They had disappeared into the darkness, but they were taking the road towards this place, and on a venture I came over. I hoped to connect with you and get instructions. Well, that was right. Come with me. What's up? A ghost hunt, unless I'm very much mistaken. I guess we can join it without any trouble. They made their way into the old portion of the house. In the hall from which the broad stone stairs led up to the second floor, they paused a moment to listen. Steps were approaching. Before they could get into a place of concealment, a door opened and Colonel Richmond entered. He carried a small lamp in his hand. Horace followed him. Gilda! cried the Colonel, seeing Nick disguised as the coachman. Why were you not present in the parlor? I've just got back to the house, sir, rejoined the detective, imitating Gilder's Yankee twang. Who's that with you? My cousin, Frank Gilder. What's he doing here? If you please, sir, I brought him over to spend the night with me. The footman and I just don't get along very well together, and I don't like to be alone in a room in this house, sir, just now. So, said the colonel, I understand that you've seen strange things. Very well. I am going to investigate this matter. I shall pass the remainder of the night in the dining hall above. The colonel led the way up the stairs. The whole party followed him. "'May I ask where the other servants are, sir?' said Nick. "'They will pass the night in the new part of the house,' returned Horace Richmond with a grim smile. "'You can do so if you like.' "'No, sir,' said Nick. 
I think I'd rather sleep in my own room so long as my cousin is with me. At the head of the stairs, they turned at once toward the old dining hall. It was proper for Nick to follow, for the nearest way to Gilder's room led in that direction. It was exactly midnight when they opened the door of the old dining hall. A cool breath of air swept out upon them, for the thick stone walls of this part of the house resisted the hot weather, and this room had been kept closed. The colonel shivered slightly in the draft. He paused on the threshold for a moment and looked into the room. It was lighted, except for the feeble ray from the lamp, only by the faint moonlight which found its way in through the hall and narrow windows, partially overgrown with clinging vines. The whole party entered. The colonel set his lamp upon the sideboard. He turned to speak to the supposed gilder, probably with the intention of sending him at once to his room. But at that moment, the lamp suddenly went out. With a low cry, the colonel sprang toward it. The lamp was not there. It had been removed. The room was almost totally dark. The colonel lit a match. There was no sign of the lamp. It had utterly vanished. As the burned match fell to the floor, a beam of light suddenly shot across the gloom, and there, before the old-fashioned fireplace, stood a figure corresponding in every particular to Lavina Richmond as she appeared in a portrait painted just previous to her death and hanging at that moment in the colonel's room. There was no sound in the room except for the labored breathing of the excited old man whose faith was now fully justified to his mind. He was gazing straight at this apparition. It was veiled and the heavy folds of a black silk dress in the style of many years ago hung loosely about the form. Immediately a white hand appeared. The veil was lifted, disclosing the thin and pale face of a woman of advanced age and feeble health. The likeness of Lavina Richmond was perfect. The colonel tried to speak, but his voice stuck in his throat. Slowly the veil descended. Nick made a sign to Patsy, who had pressed up a little in advance. He had kept an eye over his shoulder, however, to be sure of getting any orders from his chief. There was light enough to see the signal. Patsy sprang forward toward the specter. The distance separating them was not more than twenty feet. The athletic youth would have covered it in a twinkling, but suddenly he fell to the floor with a smothered groan. Ugh! I'm hit hard! he cried, and... Raising himself upon one knee, with his left hand pressed to his temple, he drew a revolver with the other. "'Don't shoot!' exclaimed Nick. "'It's Millie Stevens!' The detective made a bound toward the figure. The light which had played full upon it wavered as if about to vanish. Yet there was time. Nick felt sure of his prize as he sprang out from his place beside the colonel. And the next thing Nick knew, it was six o'clock of the following morning, and he was lying in a bed, looking up into Patsy's face. Chapter 8 Patsy's Story and the Test Proposed Are you much hurt? asked Patsy anxiously. Nick took in the whole scene before he replied. Beside the bed were Colonel Richmond, Horace, and a man whom Nick rightly judged to be a doctor. No, said Nick. I'm not much hurt, except in my feelings. What happened, Patsy? The ghost got away responded the young man in a tone of disgust. I wouldn't talk very much, said Colonel Richmond. The doctor says that you have been subjected to a severe nervous shock, and— My grandmother's ducks, exclaimed Nick, 
nervous shock. Well, this makes me worse. Why, man, I've been sandbagged. The colonel shook his head. The power of unseen forces, he began, but Nick interrupted him. Look here, Colonel Richmond, he said. If you had the sensation behind your ear that I've got, you wouldn't talk about mysterious powers of darkness. I know what's the matter with me, and what I want is a chance to get square. There is no evidence of any injury, said the physician. There never is in a case of this kind, rejoined Nick. A sandbag doesn't leave any mark. That's why it is so popular. It is impossible to convince a stubborn man, said the colonel. I should think that this experience would have been enough. Quite enough, thank you, responded Nick, sitting up. And so, if you gentlemen who kindly put me to bed will gracefully withdraw, I will get into my clothes and prove to you that I have had enough, and that it is somebody else's turn now. He made them leave with Patsy. Then he began to dress. Now, tell me your story, he said. When I jumped for that spook, Patsy began, I got the fearfullest thump on my crust that I've had since that marlin spike fell off the main yard onto me in the little affair of the five kernels of corn. It couldn't have been a marker to what you got afterward, though. I went down, but not out. You saw me draw my gun. Well, when you yelled, don't fire, I held off. But when I saw you go out, I decided that all orders of that kind were canceled. I blazed away. And Nick, I put five bullets through that figure just as sure as you're an inch high. What happened then? The light went out. I got to your side and flashed your lantern in half a second. The figure had vanished. The colonel's lamp stood on the sideboard just where he had put it. We had a fair light very soon. I examined you first, and upon my word, I thought that you were done for. We got you up into this room, and Horace Richmond rode off for the doctor. From what he said about a nervous shock, you can judge how much he knows. His help wasn't worth anything. I will back myself against him any day. I made sure that you were only stunned and that you would come to all right. Then I hurried down to that room and began my search. Well, you know that room. It is simply built up of traps and panels. A man can go through the floor or the walls almost anywhere. My job would have been a good deal easier if there had been less of that secret machinery. When there are five hundred ways in which a thing could have been done, it's pretty hard to say which one is right. There's a trap pretty nearly in the spot where that figure stood. Probably she came up and went down through that. But how about my shooting? There's the point. I took a direct line from the place where I was to the trap. Following that line, I came to the screen in front of the fireplace. In that screen, and about four and a half feet from the floor, were three bullets from my pistol. The other two are not there. Then, as I figure it out, that ghost has carried them away. My shooting was pretty good considering the light. The three bullets were in the bigness of a watch crystal. I feel sure that the other two were aimed just as well. If that's true, then one of the conspirators has some mighty serious wounds. Three went through her, and she stopped, too. But there isn't a drop of blood to be found. The passage under the trap I have explored thoroughly. I can't find a human being or trace of blood or any of the machinery which they must have used for the light or the ghost. Of course, the failure to find traces of the conspirators is not strange. These passages are so long and so intricate and so mighty well gotten up that I haven't had time to go through them all. But the wounded person is another matter. Where she is hidden is more than I can imagine. I hope it wasn't Miss Stevens, said Nick. You called her name? Yes, I thought the chances were that it was she. But, of course, I couldn't recognize her in that rig for certain. Well, if it was she, of course, we shall find it out. 
it's impossible for her to carry those two bullets around with her and not show it. Nick was dressed by this time. They went out into the hall of the new part. Nick had been taken to a room there instead of being carried to that which had been assigned to him in the old part of the house. From below came the sound of voices. The colonel, the doctor, and Mrs. Pond were talking of the case. Patsy stopped before a closed door in the upper hall. A sign from Patsy arrested Nick's attention. He communicated to Nick in their silent language. That's Horace's room, isn't it? Whom is he talking with? Nick listened. Then he laughed. You fooled yourself there, Patsy, he said. He's talking to a parrot. It's one of his pets. He has a good many. Patsy looked a little sheepish. You can't blame me, Nick, he said. We must suspect everybody in such business as this. Isn't that right? Quite right, responded the detective. They went at once to the old dining hall. Colonel Richmond presently joined them there. To him, Nick frankly explained all the events of the previous night, including the disguise which he had adopted in order not to appear in the ghost hunt in his own person. In return, the colonel confessed the facts of his visit to the medium. He said that he had done it secretly because Horace and his daughter so strongly objected to his seeing those who held communion with the other world. As to the woman who had met the colonel, he said that he did not know her by name. She was veiled all the time and did not speak to him. After the disturbance, he was careful not to call it an expose, this woman had led him to the carriage, and they had hastened away. Such was the strength of his delusion that he still believed that the manifestations he had seen at that house were genuine. He would not accept Nick's version of the affair. I have made up my mind what to do, he said. My decision is unalterable. I shall buy the jewels and give them to Millie Stevens. I believe that in so doing, I shall carry out my aunt's wishes. It was a queer case for Nick. He had followed up many crimes and had recovered a hundred fortunes and stolen property. But this was the first time that he had seen a robbery going on before his eyes and had been unable to prevent it. His pride was aroused. There was no use in combating the colonel's delusion. Of that he felt sure. The man must be humored in order to secure delay. Colonel Richmond, said Nick, I wish to suggest to you a final test in this matter. It will settle all doubt and satisfy me thoroughly. If you can convert me to your views, I should think that the achievement might be worth the trouble. <laughs> it would indeed, cried the colonel with sparkling eyes. Nick, with his usual tact, had hit upon exactly the right course. You believe, of course, he said, that the spirits of the dead cannot be stopped by bolts and bars. The colonel smiled and nodded assent. The most of the jewels in dispute are, I believe, in the vaults of a safe deposit company, Nick continued. Very well. My test is this. Name some article of the collection which you are sure is there, and see whether your aunt will transfer it to Miss Stevens' possession. It should be as easy for a ghost to take anything from the vaults of a safe deposit company as from that dressing table upstairs. Will you consent to the test? The colonel stood irresolute. Consent, said a voice as of a woman standing beside them. Yet the three men were the only human beings in that room. The voice came from that screen, cried Patsy, and he leaped toward the old fireplace. He tore away the screen. No one was there. It was my aunt's voice, said the colonel calmly. I consent. Consent to what? asked Horace Richmond, entering the room at that moment. The test was explained to him. Good, he whispered to Nick. A fine idea. Name a piece of jewelry, said the detective to the colonel. 
Among all her wonderful collection, replied Colonel Richmond, speaking slowly, there was no piece of which she was more proud than the gold clasp studded with diamonds, which you well remember, Horace. I do, responded Horace. There's an old tradition about it. A remote ancestor of ours is said to have brought it from the Holy Land at the time of the Third Crusade. An ancient family, said Nick. You have a right to be proud of your ancestry. I accept the article named as the one upon which the test shall be made, provided that you are sure that it is now in the vault. Perfectly certain, responded the colonel. I put it there with my own hands. Nobody else was present, except an officer of the company and my daughter. It is utterly impossible that the jewel can have been removed. I will take that for granted, said Nick. The conditions of the test are that this piece shall not be found in the vault when we visit it this afternoon, and that it shall be afterward discovered in the possession of Millie Stevens. Granted, said the colonel, and then in a clear voice, as if he wanted to be sure that there was no misunderstanding in Spiritland, he announced the conditions of the test. How will Nick prove his case? Was Millie Stevens really behind the appearance of the ghostly figure? Or is Colonel Richmond truly being haunted by the ghost of his dead sister? The answer to all of these questions and more will be answered in the final episode of Nick Carter's Ghost Story. <laughs> well, that's quite a story. One more episode left in this amazing tale. What are your thoughts as to who did what? You know, you can post your thoughts on our website at forwardintothepastpodcast.com. While you're there, you can sign up for the mailing list and be notified of future stories and special events for Halloween and Christmas. Or you can support the show by clicking on the link to my Buy Me a Coffee support page. Remember, by supporting the show, you are also allowing me to support Project Gutenberg as a thank you for providing the amazing stories for this podcast. And of course, special thanks go to you, our listeners, for supporting my growing podcast. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. Keep sharing the stories and be a good human. Bye for now.